What's going on, far, far away family? Welcome to Star Wars Audio Archive. So how's everyone doing today? I hope all is well on your side of the galaxy because we got a few things happening out here on the Outer Rim that I think that we need to cover. One being there has been talks of a Solo sequel. Co-writer of Solo, Lawrence Kasdan, reveals that he is ready to make a sequel. This happened in an interview with Inverse. Kasdan was asked if he planned to revisit any of his characters, specifically if a Han Solo TV series might be in the horizon. He stated, no, there's not any of that. But I do talk to John Favreau and Ron Howard a lot about what went right and what went wrong with the solo experience. But I would be more interested in doing another movie, not a TV series. While casting revealed he was willing to work on the continuation for Solo, his son and co-writer John Casting had previously stated his belief that John Favreau, the executive producer on Disney's live-action Star Wars shows, will one day continue the solo story. I think someday we are going to see what happened, John Casting said. Kasten further claimed he discussed a possible sequel with Favreau, who was thrilled with the possibility of doing a solo sequel, which I think would be cool if they did another solo movie. I wasn't the biggest fan of the first solo, but it had enough of a story to keep me intrigued, and I still watch it every time it comes on TV. It slowly fell into my Star Wars repertoire. So I want to know your thoughts. Email us and let us know if you think that they should make a solo sequel. Now moving on to the next story that I thought we should cover is a book that I just finished listening to. And as far as Star Wars literature goes, it wasn't my favorite. These kind of stories just aren't my cup of tea. But it did have enough action to keep me listening. And overall, it was a good book. I am talking about Star Wars, The Princess and the Scoundrel. This book finally gives Leia and Han a worthy wedding, but author Beth Revis doesn't make their honeymoon quite as engaging. Even though Leia and Han's romance is a key element in the Star Wars saga, the movie's only covered its shaky beginning and bittersweet end. It was a little disappointing to see how the couple married and drifted apart, between Return of the Jedi and Force Awakens, with little sense that they enjoyed any wedding bliss. Beth aimed to solve this issue with the novel, which takes place just after Return of the Jedi. It reveals that Leia and Han got married pretty much immediately, and they sped off on their honeymoon. The first part of the story takes place on Endor, as Han and Leia prepare for their wedding. Beth instills this section with lightheartedness since they just won the war and now they are entering into a new era of hope for the galaxy. Leia and Han get used to the fact that Luke Skywalker is her brother. And yes, the super weird Leia and Luke kiss from Empire Strikes Back is talked about. And it was a lot of fun to spend time with Lando and a bunch of the other heroes when the Empire isn't trying to kill them. And their possibilities seem endless. This joy seeps into Leia and Han's Ewok-assisted wedding ceremony which Beth describes in great detail. But in the midst of all this, Leia grapples with the news that the late Darth Vader, who tortured her and Han, stood by as her home world was blown up and was generally a really bad guy in her life, was in fact her father. This makes her question if she should learn to use the Force. Should she take the chance like her twin brother Luke or steer clear because she might fall into the dark side like her dad did? We know from the last two movies that Leia will learn the ways of the Force from her brother Luke, but we have seen very little of this story. Leia does take her first steps into the Force in this novel, and these sections are some of the novel's most intriguing. Beth delivers the danger of this new side beautifully. However, romance is not this novel's focus, and the tale becomes less engaging when Leia and Han set off on their honeymoon. This comes after entertaining Chewie on the Millennium Falcon, where they finally arrive on Halcyon, and Beth builds out this location nicely. But the book loses steam as Leia starts to mix business with pleasure. She gradually turns their honeymoon into a diplomatic mission, and Han just wanders the ship. He engages in some sketchy car games and finds some trouble to get into. It makes sense that the two would slip back into their old habits, especially when you know that Leia spent most of her life battling the Empire, and Han has always operated just outside of the law. Unfortunately, the novel feels disorganized as they drift apart, possibly because we know the sinister forces will push them apart in the end, 
Thankfully, their bond isn't quite so frayed at this point in the timeline, and they come together before an imperial threat emerges in the novel's final part. The story regains momentum here, when Beth builds up this engaging mystery. Then she really brings the danger in a great new location. Its only letdown is by the villain whose part is so short that you will probably forget about it by the end of the book. The princess and the scoundrel give Leia and Han a great wedding, a wedding worth cinematic icons and a foreshadow of their destiny in a tantalizing way. Their honeymoon isn't as memorable, but it doesn't take too long for their adventure to regain their romance. Like I said earlier, it had enough action to keep me listening once I got past all the mushy stuff. And overall, it was a decent Star Wars story. This book is set to come out on the 16th of this month, and if Han and Leia's wedding was something that you wanted to know about, it's worth the listen. Moving right along to our next part, and it will be our fun fact of the week. Something that some of you may know and others may not, but they're always fun. During the Jabba Palace sequence in Return of the Jedi, a scene that involved over 160 crew members and took an entire month to capture on film. There was a famous gold bikini that wouldn't behave itself, and Carrie Fisher refused to use tape to keep everything in place, which resulted in the sequence needing to be reshot a bunch of times. And because of this wardrobe malfunction, there was some exposed parts of Carrie Fisher. So if you've ever had the desire to know what they look like, find someone that was in the cast. I bet they might be able to describe them to you. Okay, now let's get to Brotherhood, because when we left off last week, Obi-Wan had convinced the Nymordians to let him come in place of Palpatine. Count Dooku didn't make this easy for him, because now he can't communicate with anyone outside of Cato Nymordia, and Dooku was sending a representative of the Separatists, which should make things that much harder for Obi-Wan. But Obi-Wan was preparing to leave, so let's see what's happening now. But first, we gotta drop that intro. <laughs> We would be honored if you would join us. Mill Alabeth. Jedi initiate Mill Alabeth tried to keep up. She really tried. Come on! Her friend Vibert yelled, and even still, they trailed the group of seven younglings ahead of them, with Mill falling even farther behind. Their footsteps echoed through the large stone hall of the Jedi Temple, and she looked up to catch her friends round in the corner to get to the turbo lift. First, Ami Kat Ayama, a Syrian girl with thick black hair tied up in a bun. Then Alay and Mela Thuria turned. A pair of purple-skinned Twi'lek twins, their familial bond making sure each always pushed the other forward. Then three more younglings dashed ahead, and even Felix Yabir, the young Celestin with shorter legs, sprinted faster than Mill. They disappeared from view, though Mill managed to make the left turn and see the group of initiates moving quickly, a whirl of voices and excitement that startled the very serious adults on either side of the hall. Finally, Vivert pulled ahead, lingering enough to glance at Mill, as if that single look repeated her words before she sprinted onward. Vivert's stag's curly hair bounced on her pale cheeks with each step, and she broke farther away. Mill took a moment to close her eyes. She was already behind anyway, and she could feel the anxiety creeping in, so she went back to her recent practice of doing the opposite of her Jedi teachings. Wherever she felt the Force, she tried to push it away, quiet it, keep it at bay. Another voice came through to break her concentration, 
This one with the robotic ring of a synthesized voice. Younglings, walk please. But the protocol droid failed to move fast enough, its arms and legs out of sync and stilted toddling. Protocol droids lacked speed to begin with, but this one had hit a double case of bad luck. First received a fill-in assignment with younglings instead of serving visiting adults from other planets or the ones from the main government buildings. And the younglings knew this, tricking the protocol droid before it could introduce itself. If it had said its service number, Mill didn't even hear it. Second, this protocol droid had a loose gyro in its knee socket, slowing it down further. Rumors had the normally quick repair lab within the Jedi Temple being converted into something for the war. Blasters or shields or whatever they might need. She wasn't even sure if that was for the clones or for the Jedi who fought with them now. General, she'd heard the clones say, which made no sense, given that the Jedi were either masters or Jedi knights or Padawans, or, like her, initiates. It didn't really matter because nothing made sense these days. Like how Vyvert and the rest of her initiate friends jogged forward as if nothing bothered them at all. The Clone Wars, they called it. Which she supposed was a fitting name since the Republic now used a clone army. But wasn't it a war about systems leaving the Republic? Whatever name they gave it, one thing was clear. Every image, hollow clip, or even discussion affected Mill, sometimes making her more ill than the worst bacterial infection. Her whole life, simply being close to violence or suffering, left a deep nausea. But it had only gotten worse with each passing day, after the Jedi returned from Geonosis. Actually, returned was the wrong word for that because many Jedi didn't return. Masters, Jedi Knights, Padawans, all manner of Jedi lost their lives at Geonosis. And with that, sometimes even being in certain parts of the temple caused headaches and queasiness. Yet today seemed worse than usual. Well, it seems like the Padawans are in a good mood and they are running through the Jedi temple like a bunch of kids being kids. I wonder what Yoda would have said if he caught them doing this. It would have probably sound something like this. Running in the temples, younglings do not, or something that didn't make no sense. But one of the younglings, Mil Alabath, which was a Zabrak female Jedi initiate, who lived during the late Republic era as an initiate, Mil had a powerful empathic power which she found difficult to control. This caused her to experience severe nausea whenever she was exposed to anything related to combat or violence. Even the discussion of the subject would make her ill. So when the Clone Wars began in 22 BBY, the mood around the Jedi Temple changed, making things very unpleasant for Mill. So bad that she attempted to cut herself off from the Force. This is the reason she can't keep up with the rest of the group. The rest of the group is using the Force, and Mill has cut herself off from the Force, which that is very sad. Could you imagine being able to use the Force, but instead of it making you better, it made you sick? That would be the worst. But what I truly don't understand, why didn't none of the other Jedi see what was happening to her? That's why the Jedi lost. They stopped paying attention to what was going on around them. I heard once that their arrogance was their downfall. And the more that I learn about this time, I am starting to agree with that. But as these younglings are running through the temple, the Jedi assign a broken droid to keep an eye on them. 
He has a messed up knee and he is trying to keep up with kids that can use the force. See, that's what I'm saying. Too busy to pay attention to what's going on around him. That's why it was so easy for Sidious to fool everyone. He kept everyone jumping through hoops and then he confused the heck out of the Padawans. He gave the Jedi titles like General. This seemed very odd to Mill because Jedis were either Masters, Knights, Padawans, Younglings, or Initiates. Which Younglings, Padawans, and Initiates are all the same thing. They were never called Generals. This is until the Clone Wars started. Something that we heard a lot of in the animated series. Okay, let's see what happens in the next part. Her friends jumped out of bed, ate quickly, and sprinted down the hall to get to the transport shuttle. Their every word stuck on the idea of making their own lightsabers, weapons of war as the Clone Wars got worse with every passing moment. It all made Mill's stomach hurt and temples pound. Gathering! 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 Her friends chanted in a group, a joy that she couldn't quite grasp. For several weeks, it was all they talked about. What color kyber crystal they wanted. What type of handle or emitter they wanted to use. Or how Professor Hu Yang was so old that the ancient droid supposedly arrived at the Jedi Temple in a big blue box thousands of years ago before ever teaching lightsaber construction. She'd felt well enough to fake it, laughing or joining in. Besides, lightsabers looked neat, and the way they hummed and buzzed, well, that seemed to be the best part of being a Jedi. But lightsabers meant violence. Violence meant suffering. And though no one could quite explain why Mill's particular connection with the Force worked this way, suffering made her sick. Younglings! The protocol droid called before holding a comm to its mouth, its shiny green plating reflecting the endless lights of the Jedi Temple. Attention, Padawan Quinn. The younglings have finished their meals and are awaiting you at the transport to Ilum. Understood. I'm rushing to get over there. Mill knew why the adults seemed tense this morning, actually since yesterday. The only thing anyone talked about in the temple was Cato Neimoidia. The usual training sessions had been cancelled, with younglings handed off to various droids to work on acrobatics or meditation. The older Jedi rushed to and fro, some with their Padawans and some by themselves. They're sending the Jedi all over to calm everyone down, Vivert said over breakfast. Every system thinks they'll be the next. Next. Mel considered what that meant. She tried to shut it all out, to instead focus on what she could do. Take a breath, take a step, look at her studies, eat her meals, stay hydrated, all to push herself to the point of getting on the crucible for the flight to Ilum. Once there, she figured she could at least get away from all talk of the war and the horrors that just happened on Cato Neimoidia. She did all of that. And she did it all without connecting with the Force. That proved to be too overwhelming in a time of crisis. Mill pushed forward, her friends already down to the landing platform, while the protocol droid fell woefully behind. Left foot, right foot, and repeat. And she even managed to get some words out. Coming! She yelled to her friends. Wait up! She forced a smile, despite the burning nausea in her gut and the pounding in her two Zabrak hearts. She almost made it through, 
until something caught her eye. She shouldn't have looked, but the glow of the hollow recordings instinctively tempted her focus, pulling her from the path to the docking platform to a small office off to her left. A few robed Jedi gathering around a bright hollow transmission. And then, for the first time, she laid eyes on Cato Neimoidia. It was only a glimpse, a view from the sky of a long stretch of a city draped in fog. Except this city had a massive chunk missing from it. In its place rose lines of dark smoke. That was all Mill took in before her feet stopped, her momentum nearly causing her to stumble over herself. Her tan hands slammed to the floor, and the short tail of black hair dropped down, tickling the side of her face, some of it catching on her horns. She thought of other things, anything to block out the images of the collapsed cityscape, and though she was far enough from the hologram that fine details eluded her, it didn't matter. When she closed her eyes, her connection to the Force brought it all to her unintentionally, like a navigational map of the fallen region except with heat-like signatures pulsing. Not as a display of temperature, but an insight into the pain of a population, a wave of bright oranges and reds silently screaming to the ether of the Force. We love bringing you more Star Wars, and it is because of our partners that we can do this week after week. So we invite you to be one of those partners. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us keep this going. Your support will give us the ability to create future episodes, as well as provide you with the best sounding show on your playlist. And to express our appreciation, we will give you a shout out on our mid-series show that we do in the middle of every book. You will also be automatically entered in all future giveaways. All you have to do is go to the show notes and click that listener support link. Now let's get back to the show. Youngling, is something wrong? Do you require medical attention? Uh-uh, she said, pushing herself up. By now, the other initiates had gathered at the turbo lift to the platform, and she took step after step, the dizzying connection to the force still causing her to stumble off-center. She tried to close off from the force, but her link proved too strong, and it flooded all of her senses. I'm going to build a staff, Ami Katayama said. Spin it around, slice through a line of battle droids like a buzzsaw. The mere mention put the image in Mill's mind, as if she were the line of battle droids falling victim to the whirring lightsaber. But rather than unfeeling machines, the sensation of violence rippled through her. No, you won't. They're going to shoot 50 blaster bolts at you. And you're only going to block one of them. Too slow. Vivert twirled, an imaginary lightsaber in her hands. Felix spoke in his native language. A taunt in words Mill hadn't totally grasped yet, but which caused the others to laugh. Yeah, maybe I'll just deflect them over to you. Hit you right in the face. Vivert replied with a laugh. Mill tried. She tried so hard to keep it together, so much that her knuckles were sore from clenched fists. But the more her friend's banter escalated, the more the violence of their words whipped sensations into her mind, heightening the pain she already felt from the images of the bombing. Her legs gave out, knees hitting the floor, and though she supported herself with one arm, 
the last thing on her mind was Ilum and the gathering. This morning's breakfast ejected out of her. A collective ew coming from her friends. M3M4, what's going on? yelled Maylira Quinn, the human female Padawan assigned to take them to Ilum. It is initiate Alabeth. It appears that this youngling is quite ill. Mel, right? Malira knelt down, her blonde hair draping over one shoulder. She'd met Malira before, during other Padawan-led training. But something in her face felt different. Lines of concern that weren't there before Geonosis. Are you all right? Vivert came by, too, hand on Mel's back. She forced a smile to reassure her friend. I'm fine, Mel said. I'm ready for the gathering and to meet Professor Hu Yang, and... The sudden thought of a lightsaber of all things, an elegant weapon for defense, yes, but a weapon nonetheless, brought the nausea back, and now her head spun as well. I'm afraid you are not, youngling, Malira said. She turned to the protocol droid, apparently named M3M4. Take this initiate back to the infirmary. She's going to need a different assignment while we go to Ilum. Mill nodded, saying the appropriate thank yous and goodbyes as she got herself up. But inside, she made a new vow to herself. She wouldn't just quiet the Force. She would find a way to permanently cut herself off from it. Because she couldn't live like this. Okay, there wasn't much really to talk about in the rest of this part. Mill sees Kato Nymordia for the first time. It causes her to become sick to her stomach, while the other initiates talk about how they're going to construct their lightsabers. And that was really about it. This wasn't the most exciting part of the book. It was more about the introduction of Mill Alabath. But let's get to the quote of this week, and it comes to us from Robert Kiyosaki. He said, the size of your success is measured by the strength of your desire and how you handle disappointment along the way. This is a very powerful quote. Success is measured by your desires to achieve. Whatever your goal is, you must have the desires to reach that goal if you ever want to achieve it. If your dream is owning a billion dollar company, but your desire level is at a one, meaning you struggle to get off the couch, the likeliness of you reaching this goal is slim. Your desire level needs to be at a 10, meaning you get out of the bed running. No time wasted in a day. Every minute must be accounted for. You are always doing something to reach that goal, and you must be willing to go through a lot of failures to get there. Before we move on, I want to explain something, because we talk about it a lot. We talk about failures, but there are those rare occasions where people do succeed on their first try. It does happen, but I want everyone to understand that the majority of the time, most success comes from hard work and good planning. I don't want you to give up because something got hard or because an idea didn't work out. You can learn from all experiences, even the bad ones. Those who succeed in life are the people that didn't give up. They kept moving forward until they succeeded. And that's really what this quote means. Your desire to become successful at whatever you are trying to achieve has to be so strong that no obstacle can sway you from your goal. Because in the real world, you will shed blood, sweat, and tears to gain success. But don't let that stop you from trying. 99% of those that came from nothing that achieved their goals suffered through the exact same thing. I'm telling you this because it's the truth. And I know this information will prepare you for those hard times when they come. And you will handle the disappointment in the right way. By knowing it is not the end of your journey. It is just a speed bump on the road to success. And I think that's all for this episode. Join us next week for part nine of this amazing story. We hope to see you there.
Thank you for listening to Star Wars Audio Archives. Join us next time for more Star Wars adventures. If you would like to listen to other episodes of the show, you can follow us on your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoyed the show, we would greatly appreciate a five-star review. Once again, thank you for listening, and may the Force be with you. Sway was created by Keen Eye Shed and is a production of Pick Film Media and was distributed by Swaycast Networks. This show was produced by Quentin McDaniel. Star Wars Brotherhood was read to you by Jason O'Dagan. Sound designed by Theodore Thompson. I am your host, Kyle, and we will see you next time in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs>